You're listening to episode 25 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Chat About Children where we chat about all things children and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today's episode is all about specific learning difficulties in children. It is an area that I have worked with extensively over the years as a speech pathologist. And it's an area that as speech pathologists, we work quite heavily in the identification, in the prevention and the management of specific learning difficulties, because there is such a strong link between speech and language development and the ability to later learn how to read, spell and write. But certainly within our management of children that do have specific learning difficulties, we work very closely and collaboratively with a team. And that team is often um, an educational and developmental psychologist, and also it's often an occupational therapist. So joining me today, I have Tanya Barber, and I was really keen to have a chat with her. I've worked with her extensively over the years, and she has so much to offer in terms of sharing with us today the firstly the definition uh, you know of specific learning difficulties because it has changed over time so she's going to go in and clarify that and she'll also share with us the diagnosis you know the process that she goes through and the areas that she tests in order to come up with a diagnosis of specific learning difficulty or specific learning disorder we also touch on the red flags so things that we can look out for as parents and professionals and we also look at strategies. So we look at strategies that, you know, generally can be applied within the classroom. And we discuss the very important thing, you know, as parents and carers, what is the best way that we can support children who do have specific learning difficulties. So make sure you stay tuned to soak up all the wonderful and valuable information in my chat with Tanya today. Let's start the chat. So joining me today for a chat about specific learning difficulties in children is Tanya Barber. She is an experienced private practice educational and developmental psychologist. Tanya has a master degree in psychology, educational and developmental, and is a fellow of the College of Educational and Developmental Psychologists. Tanya has a special interest in the comprehensive assessment of children and adolescents profile and identification of support needs. She also has extensive experience in assessment of ability, so that's IQ, in core learning skill, in specific learning disorder, in social and emotional development, and also in neurodevelopmental disorders such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and autism spectrum disorder. Tanya does work very closely with parents, schools, psychiatrists, pediatricians, and intervention providers such as speech pathologists and occupational therapists. Welcome to the show, Tanya. Oh, thank you for having me, Sonia. I'm really looking forward to having a talk about specific learning difficulties today. Well, thank you for joining me. And you're a lady that's hard to catch because you're extremely busy. There is a lot going on in the specific learning difficulties world, I have to say. And as I mentioned earlier, you work closely with speech pathologists and you and I have seen a number of children over the years with specific learning difficulties. So I'm quite excited to just have a chat and get more awareness and knowledge out there about some of the things that you do and a little bit about what I do as well. But let's start with you, Tanya. Help us to understand what an educational and developmental psychologist is and how it's different to other kind of psychologists like clinical psychologists. 
Yeah, so in psychology, there's a number of areas of endorsed practices. So psychologists can specialise in a particular field. So clinical psychologists traditionally do lots of treatment for children and adults, educational and developmental psychologists, looking at developmental issues. Learning is one of those developmental issues. And we do a lot more assessment and work a lot more closely with schools, intervention providers, you know, paediatricians for those developmental issues, which including learning. Yeah. And as I said earlier, it's a super busy area. You've had years of experience, Tanya. Do you think there's been an increase over the years in terms of specific learning difficulties, I guess, coming into your office per se or needing an assessment? What's your personal experience? My experience is that I think the specific learning difficulties have always been there, but I think what we've got a lot better at is identifying those specific learning difficulties. So I've been working with children for 15 years. Prior to that, I was working with adults. And I think certainly we're just getting better and better at identifying children that have learning difficulties and knowing actually how to identify them and what kind of intervention is actually going to help these children. Yes, and early identification has been a massive, there's been a massive push for that generally in the medical and allied health fields over recent years, wouldn't you say? Yeah, so I think we used to wait a very long time, even when I started working 15 years ago, we would often get, you know, teenagers sort of midway through high school at the end of their high school life. And then we would be identifying that there were some really big difficulties with core learning skills. Now we're getting much better in those early primary school years at at identifying learning difficulties. And we can actually even before children go to school, there's some little sort of red flags that we might be able to identify and, you know, educate parents and teachers about monitoring children who we think might be at high risk of developing specific learning difficulties. Absolutely. Now we're going to get into the red flags very shortly, but I think what's important is just making clear how we define a specific learning difficulty because it changes names and terms and people refer to it differently. So let's just clear all that up so we can get onto the red flags, etc. So how would you define a specific learning difficulty? So a specific learning difficulty is when a child has difficulties or they have developed core learning skills. So for a child to be able to progress with their learning, they have to have a a skill set, you know, which includes quite a number of core skills. So, with a specific, so you know, so basic reading skills, so sight word identification, you know, the ability to code words, you know, there's some writing core learning skills as well. So that would be the ability to, you know, plan written responses. Those reading skills also impact on writing skills. We also in mathematics have a very similar you know, type of profile where we we occasionally find a child who has a deficit in core mathematical skills, like really hasn't really automated the ability to add and subtract, you know, and if we don't have those core learning skills developed, we're unable to progress with great appropriate learning. Yes. So it's obviously in specific domains, which is why they'd call it specific learning difficulty. What's it been called in the past? Because it has kind of, it gets called different things. So can you share with us how those terms have changed? In terms of diagnosis, you know, we find children with specific learning disorder. So they're the children that are in the bottom 15% in terms of core learning skill. They have a diagnosis attached to them, specific learning disorder in reading, specific learning disorder in 
written expression or specific learning disorder in mathematics. Previously, those terms have been dyslexia, dysgraphia and dyscalculia. So they've changed the terms, but there's also a little bit of a different way of diagnosing specific learning disorders now. Okay. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Because we are going to get into it and diagnosis is really where, you know, that's predominantly a lot of the work that you do is, you know, for teachers, speech pathologists, OTs, when they want to, you know, get further information from someone such as yourself in terms of that diagnostic point of view, what areas are you looking at? So, I mean, quite traditionally before DSM-5, came out. So the way to really diagnose the dysgraphia, dyslexia and dyscalculia was to do an IQ test Mm -hmm. and an academic assessment, so both standardised assessments. And we used to try and locate whether there was a difference between a child's ability and where their core learning skills were. So was there a big gap that was unexplained by the, the child's ability to learn. So we don't really use that process anymore. We can use that for children um, with slightly higher ability, um, but we we tend to look at what kind of, you know, we look very closely at the core skills um, that children have. We look at what kind of intervention they might have had. So have they been exposed at school or through any sort of external interventions? Have they... Have they been exposed to core learning um, skills? You know, have they been able to acquire that? And there's really strong um, evidence that um, children with specific learning disorders, uh, it's related to some sort of neurobiological issues. So something um, related to specific areas of brain development um, where it's just more difficult to um, acquire and, and maintain core learning skill. Yes. Okay. And it it sounds very complex. (laughs) It sounds very complex. And I think when people look at, um, you know, one of your reports, for example, some of the areas or the words that come up are IQ. So, if, if you can, in very simple terms, explain when someone comes in and they have an IQ test, what are you looking at there? What are you testing in very simple terms? Yeah, so an IQ is um, it's a it, it, it's a set of skills that we have that help uh, that it's predict how we're going to learn. So what our IQ does, um, you know, in, in children, it predicts where they're going to sit academically. Um, so their so potential. Their potential. So what's their potential for learning? It's different for everybody. Most children are in the average range. Uh, and then we, you know, have some people that are in that higher range and some people in the lower range, most people in the average range. So our IQ um, score predicts where we should sit um, academically, what, you know, what our learning potential is. So yeah. for those that are diagnosed with a specific learning difficulty, where does their IQ typically sit? Yeah, so the IQ can, can really, um, the IQ score can be really anywhere. So you can be a very high ability student and um, have specific learning um, difficulties. So, an, you know, a difficulty in a particular area of learning. Uh, but I actually even, and you can have that average IQ and have the specific learning difficulties. Um, but I also find in children with a lower IQ score, um, that they can also, the thing that they really respond to often is an SLD framework. 
framework where we send them to a speech language therapist and or OT. Um, and we know that those children, you know, have the same difficulty um, as well and respond to intervention in the same way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in terms of you know, what speech pathologists do when we play a, a big part, I guess, in um, looking at the prevention and the intervention and the management um, of specific learning difficulties, because there is that known link of a history of speech and language difficulties, you know, potentially then leading to uh, learning difficulties. So, so speech pathologists do, do certainly play a part um, and I don't want to make it all about what speech pathologists do because we're talking to you today, Tanya. But um, I want to go back a little bit and, and talk about some of the things that you look at when you're doing that diagnostic process. So we've touched on IQ and then we, we look at executive functioning. So explain in simple terms what that is. So executive function, again, is related to the way that our brain works uh, and it's our ability to plan and organise and time manage and stay on task and, uh, you know, get back to task if distracted. Uh, so it's our ability to independently manage um, our learning tasks and we do find that lots of children with specific learning um, disabilities disorders um, have difficulties in that in that particular area of function as well. So in a comprehensive assessment, we would always be looking at those exec executive functions, you know, as well as IQ and core academic skill. Yeah. Uh, and, and as a treatment psychologist as well, I would always be screening for things like anxiety, avoidance behaviours, um, behaviour. Um, most children with learning difficulties uh, don't you know, don't come along with challenging behaviour, but we do have some children um, who use behaviour as avoidance um, yes, because their learning yes. is difficult. Uh, so we, we look at all of those things when we're conducting a comprehensive assessment. And, and tell us a little bit about um, attention and how what you see in your clinic in terms of attention skills or attention ability. Uh, is that often an issue for those that do have specific learning difficulties or disorders? Yeah, particularly in that average range, um, IQ um, and above, we would find that most children or adolescents with specific learning disorders would have a significant attention problem. So there's a number of things that predict what happens with our learning uh, and how we acquire core learning skill. Uh, and, you know, one is our IQ is predictive. Another is attending schools, very important. Um the another, um, you know, attention would be our third issue. So if we are not able to concentrate and maintain attention and remember core learning, uh, that would often be an issue that's identified um, as a um, causal factor um, in um, children with specific learning disorders. And it's huge. It's something that occupational therapists and speech pathologists work heavily in that area of attention, just as a fundamental to be able to add layers of learning on top of that. Um, so, yeah, so that that is obviously not surprising. So, yeah, around attention as well. Uh, so we, you know, uh, until sort of 10 years ago, we um, diagnosed an, an attention problem as a behavioural problem. Um, and now we know that it's really outside of the child's ability to be able to maintain 
maintain attention. Uh, so there's a lot of history around that, a lot of parents that feel um, you know, scared um, uh, about their children having an attention problem. But we actually know that most children with attention problems uh, have the more inattentive type of ADHD that um, often only impacts on learning um, and not on behavioural social function. Yes, yes. So what are some of the red flags? Because we've touched on quite a few areas that you look at when you're you're kind of investigating what's going on for a child. So before someone gets to you, what are those red flags that are going on? Now, one of them is obviously, you know, a history of speech and language difficulty. So very young, um, you know, we can start to see some of those red flags from history that way. Um, What are other things that, uh, that, parents and educators can keep an eye out for or just kind of go, "Mm, I'm observing this and this and this and I have a feeling it could be leading to a referral. Yeah. Yeah. So quite often we find that there's some early developmental indicators. Uh, So it might be around your late acquisition of speech and language. It might be around toilet training. Um, It might be a child that was a little bit later to um, walk or um, crawl, you know, crawl. So sometimes there's those type of developmental indicators. Uh, the speech and language is the biggest indicator for the reading disorders. And, um, I, you know, family history is very important too. Did yes. mum, brother or sister have a reading difficulty or writing difficulty or mathematical difficulty or an attention problem? Um, you know, are there lots of aunties and uncles and grandparents and cousins diagnosed with um, specific learning difficulties and attention problems? Yeah. So once once those red flags are kind of noticed, I guess the, the thing that we encourage is follow it up um, early not to yeah. wait too long. Um, and yeah. certainly from, from our professional point of view, we do our best in on referring. Um, and as I said earlier, we, we kind of look forward for a child that's, you know, two and three that we're working with, we're, we're calculating, okay, they've got this amount of time before they start school and the demands required are going to change. And so we start to think forward for that, for that child. So we're encouraging early intervention, obviously, can you think of any cases where you've seen you know, a younger child or, or even an older child that has done well? Like what happens after the diagnosis? Yeah, so I, I, one of the boys that I've been working with for quite some time, he is in his six now. Uh, so he was identified to have uh, learning difficulties in kindergarten by his kindergarten teacher. Uh, and we've gone on to... Um, to know that that child has um, attention um, ADHD, um, so that's being managed by a paediatrician. Um, and we've actually also found out that he recently has some other <laughs> sort of diagnoses as well. Um, but, you know, a really great kindergarten teacher, you know, said to mum, you know, go and get an assessment. Um, so your child's not really picking up on this core learning. So at the end of kindergarten or early year one, he was assessed uh, and it looked like he was a little bit of a lower ability student with difficulties um, managing attention. Um, so he's, he's seen a speech and language therapist for four to five years um, and had attention managed medically um, under the supervision of a paediatrician. 
And he has recently been reassessed and looks like a much higher ability student. So yes. possibly in IQ test one was unable to, um, you know, maintain focus and provide his, um, you know, potential um, during that assessment. Um, but all of his core learning skills um you know, much more well-developed, um, very much sitting in the average range with lots of intervention um, and the attention's managed as well. So uh, the attention issue um, is well-managed, which is actually um, for that particular child improved learning outcomes significantly, um, but also social function and behaviour as well for that particular child. Well, it's huge, isn't it? It kind of, that's for children, that's their world. You know, going to school five days a week and learning is pretty much their world. Um, and it's, yeah. I guess the, this is another topic, but, you know, the way that the classroom and the learning environment is set up currently um, just doesn't suit every student. Um, no. They have different learning styles. Um, and I, I guess the the plus or the advantage that we have when we work with children in a one-to-one setting is that we identify those styles, what, where are their strengths, and then we work to those strengths so that they, they can learn to progress um, because we, we're able to customise our approach, I guess, in teaching and working with them. That's really tricky in a classroom situation. But can you tell us a little bit you know, about learning styles a little bit further in your experience? Yeah, so we would find that a lot of children with specific learning difficulties uh, have a predominantly visual learning style. So they learn through seeing things and through their visual memory. Uh, so, in, you know, and that can be, um, it, it can actually make it very difficult to identify that sort of initial learning because they may be able to get through kindergarten and year one and year two uh, with um, you know, the, the relying upon their visual work, working memory um, to remember sight words and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, so we do find a lot of children with specific learning difficulties with that visual uh, learning style. Um, we can sort of help support those children using some sort of visual strategies, but what we tend to try and develop is that sort of sounding out, like the decoding phonology um, that you guys develop as speech um, pathologists. Uh, so we we really try if we find that strength in in um, that visual learning style, style strength in primary school, we actually try and develop the verbal um, learning style in, in children with that particular learning, um, yeah, preferred learning style. Yeah, absolutely. And you're and you're right and we see it the visual system is usually the dominant one and we do a lot of work on auditory processing. So what they're hearing and auditory yeah. processing is one of the fundamentals um, mm. for them being able to understand that words are made up of sounds and they have to be able to hear the sounds. Um, and that's something that, as you mentioned, speech pathologists work on. So we call that phonological awareness. Um, and there's also, you know, understanding that letters represent sounds. And, and most people have heard of phonics, you know, being able to recognise a letter, know it makes a sound and retrieve that. Um, so that's a lot, of, a lot of the work that we do. It's very auditory, but in what we, when we teaching, when we are teaching that, there is a lot of visual strategy applied to it to help that child learn and complement um, their ability to learn the auditory side with the visual. So, yeah, there is there is a lot of auditory work that we do in the phonics teaching and the phonological awareness. 
but then there's that language component too. So, yeah. you know, building the vocabulary um, and working on any areas that we've identified in their oral speech and language profile um, and yes. bringing all that together to then help them learn. So it's, it's, it's quite a, it can be quite a team, well, it is quite a team effort a lot yes. of the time. Um, but I've certainly seen a lot of really positive cases and positive results, particularly with that early intervention and with that consistency. Um, would you find it's the same? It's the consistency that really matters? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's definitely the consistency and, and also having children um, assess so that we actually know what they're, you know, what call learning skills um, do they, you know, what areas do they need support in and what type of intervention is the best type of intervention. So it all has to be evidence-based. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of slower progress and it's just really working away at it for a really long time to acquire those skills. Um, and, you know, we want to work out, you know, how much the att attention problems impact children. You know, can we work around that um, without sort of diagnosis and medical management? Or is this a child where their attention problems are so significant that we um, are unable to teach them those core learning skills without their attention being managed? Yes, yes. So it does, it does come back to the foundation, really, the fundamentals of that attention being solid and being workable to add the learning layers on top. Um, and you touched on, I guess, really the overwhelm of resources out there. There's lots of programs and, and just lots of resources if a parent were to Google. There's, you just go into overwhelm. What's your yeah. advice in helping parents when that diagnosis is made? Um, and, you know, often we, we look for a, or hope for a quick fix or something that, you know, and, and there are things out there that will claim to be able to do amazing stuff. Um, but tell us how can a parent and even a professional effectively um, sift through things to understand what is evidence-based, what, what is not so great to follow? What's your advice? Yeah, so my advice would be if you were to see a speech and language therapist um, or an educational developmental psychologist, that we would um, provide information from sources, um, you know, that are promoting evidence-based practice. So, the you know, the information that I tend to refer parents to is um, Spelled New South Wales or the Australian Dyslexia Association. Uh, they've got lots of great resources for parents um, to read lots of information. Uh, they have contacts uh, so that, you know, they can make suggestions about intervention providers that provide those, um, you know, evidence-based um, therapies. And, you know, if you're seeing an um, educational and developmental psychologist, I think, uh, you know, we all have contacts with people that, um, you know, have, have worked very well previously with students uh, and where we've been able to see that, um, that, evidence-based intervention, you know, work um, yeah. and be successful. So, yep. Yeah. Fantastic. So yeah. yeah. So Fantastic. Those sort of sources. Yeah. So we're almost out of time, but I think for some of the educators that are out there and the teachers that are doing their absolute best with a group of children in the classroom, Yes. Tell us what are some of the strategies that they can use and apply within the classroom setting that uh, you know, are going to help their students generally, but also particularly those children that are in the classroom that do have specific learning difficulties. 
Yeah, so I think it's knowing um, where the students, you know, where their core learning skills are at. So, you know, is there, you know, so the work uh, that's been given to the class, is the child actually, do they have the core skills to be able to complete that work? Uh, quite often children with specific learning um, difficulties require assistance to start a task. Yeah. So... Um, you know, and it might be that they require that over and over again, but just that starting um, of a task is a very difficult thing to do. Quite often providing a little template of what's required, but, you know, in a, uh, so it's not giving them the answer, but it's showing them exactly what you would like them to do um, or getting them started. Um, there's some sort of areas. I think whilst a child is in intervention, if for instance, they're seeing a speech and language um, therapist, uh, I think it's, you know, just modifying um, their workload um, and, you know, providing support uh, to the child um, at school and really keeping in contact with that speech and language therapist or occupational therapist that's working with the child. So regular contact, you know, what are we working on? How can I um, also be applying those strategies and supporting that skill in the classroom? 100%. 100%. That collaboration is really key and it, it, is, it takes time and that's probably the biggest challenge, but it does pay off in terms of, you know, having, having the teacher feeling reassured in terms of what strategies they can apply and then seeing how that child does respond to the best of their ability. Um, so investing that time to collaborate, I think, is really really key um, because it is often a team-based approach. Um, But that's great. Helping them to start a task. We talked about visuals and I think teachers are really um, often are on top of that. They're kind of like, you know, how can I use visuals um, to best support learning? And I think I think they do a wonderful job of that and that kind of continues. And I think the other area is is those strategies that are going to help the child, particularly with attention, because that's been a big area that, that uh, we've touched on as a foundation skill. Okay. Um, and I know in reports I've read, there are little things like, you know, having the child seated at the front and close to, close to the teacher and that kind of thing. Are there any other kind of golden strategies for attention issues that you feel just should be implemented generally within the classroom setting? Yeah, I think it's reminding the child. It's often, you know, uh, so being unable to maintain attention, it's not a choice that a child makes. So I think using lots of positive behaviour support where we're, you know, reminding child of the particular skill that we're wanting um, to improve on. So, you know, today we're going to, you know, I'm going to get you to, you know, do these three questions and we're going to, you know, we're going to complete all of them and let's just try and keep our head down and get those done and, you know, and then we get a reward. So it's just gently encouraging the child. I think using lots of positive behaviour support. There's all those um, traditional uh, strategies, yes, seated close to the teacher at the front of the classroom next to another child that's not going to distract them. Um, sometimes children with attention problems become overwhelmed with lots of work. So breaking that those um, tasks down for children uh, is often helpful as well. Fantastic. And Tanya, I think on a final note, and and for the parents out there that are doing their best, um, because, you know, children, and and I see it quite often, children are often very aware of their difficulties. So there's that extra layer going on where it's, you know, they're not little kids where it's all, I'm going to speech and we're playing games. I'm not too sure what we're learning, but I'm, you know, I'm progressing. 
as they get older, they're like, hang on, I'm not reading as well as my friend and, and I'm, you know, I'm struggling in this area and I'm pull, being pulled out of the classroom. Um, so there's a lot of other layers that get attached you know, in terms of how that child feels about themselves. Yes. What are yes. some words of advice to, to parents and even educators to, to kind of have that child feeling positive about themselves and giving them a, a mindset that is healthy to do with their own self-image and their ability and, and to help them feel like it's not all about just this, like I'm still okay and I still have a lot to contribute and all that kind of stuff. So you know where yeah. I'm going with this. What do we what do we do to, to help nurture and foster that? Yeah, so I think it's a lot of, you know, building self-esteem and identifying, you know, the areas that the children are doing well in. So uh, lots of kind of developing um, self-efficacy around the child's areas of strength and not being really focused on this particular difficulty that the child has no control over. So uh, I think you know, we, you know, children, um, you know, they're, they're a whole package and, uh, you know, children with reading or writing or mathematics difficulties or, or generalist learning difficulties, you know, often, you know, they do have an area that they're really great at, like something, you know, creative or, um, you know, many children with reading difficulties prefer maths because they, you know, it's easier for them. So it's really finding that particular area and providing lots of, um you know, lots of positive reinforcement around that so the child can build their identity around that particular area, around the area of strength. So a strength-based perspective as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Are there any other take-home messages that you have, Tanya, for parents and for professionals that work with children when it comes to learning difficulties? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I think, you know, it's a great um, thing to be able to do for your child if, um, you know, parents have access to um, an educational and developmental psychologist or a um, clinical psychologist that specialises in assessment to actually kind of get that profile um, on children. So I think quite often it's a little bit of a surprising profile. We can't see a lot of that. So teachers, um, speech and language therapists, myself, when we meet a child, we can't really um, see where all those areas of strength are and where those areas of difficulties are. Uh, so having a really kind of comprehensive assessment where we're looking at, you know, IQ and core learning skill and exec executive function and attention and um, anxiety, self-esteem, if we can look at all of those areas in a really comprehensive way, um, we can actually, you know, make decisions together as parents, teachers and um, intervention providers um, in what, you know, what are the priorities to support this child's learning and, and improve their outcomes. Absolutely. So getting to know your child's profile, I guess, more fully understanding where their strengths are, taking yes. proactive steps um, as needed, work as a team and, yes. um, and keep that self-esteem um, quite strong for your child. And, and I think that's so important in terms of, you know, just building the resilience and, and them not yes. identifying themselves as someone with this difficulty and I think that's yeah. that's absolutely key so thank yeah, you Tanya yeah thank you I was just going to say something just as the last little bit a lot yeah. of children when we say to a child you've got a specific learning disorder often it's a little bit of a relief even for a very young primary school age child oh okay so I am clever but I just have this particular skill that I don't have just yet uh, and a lot of children actually 
find that their anxiety um, is reduced um, and that they, you know, it makes sense to them that I've got a clever brain, but it just, my, my brain just doesn't like sounding out words or it has trouble, you know, writing sentences. So I think actually even in sharing that information with children, it can be really, really helpful for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and you're right, it's the way it's communicated and, and the way it's shared. And I think if it's shared with that positive kind of attitude and, you know, and hope as well, like, hey, this is what's happening. It'll help you understand yourself a little better. Um, but yeah. there's certainly ways that we can we can build upon that and there's other strengths that you have going on. And, and that's a really valid point is to open the lines of communication to help them yeah. understand themselves. Yes. yes. Super yeah. important. Yeah, thank great. You. Well, thank you for having me today, Sonia. It's been great having a chat with you and and working with you in the past. Oh, I appreciate your time and and I appreciate all the work that you do um, with all the children in the community and the families because it's absolutely amazing. And and as we said earlier, we've seen fantastic results when we do have early intervention happen. Um, and you know, I continue to encourage that because. Yeah, it's it's hard to describe just how wonderful it is to see a turn, a positive turnaround, um, you know, in yes. a young child and the difference it makes for them moving, you know, on in their school life and their in their life beyond school. So, thank you so much, Tanya. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you. And that was Tanya Barber, experienced private practice educational and developmental psychologist who does do a lot of work with specific learning difficulties and did help us quite a bit in understanding that diagnostic process and management as well as some wonderful strategies that we can apply as professionals and as parents and carers if we do have children that we're working with or in our care who have specific learning difficulties. A couple of websites she mentioned was the Australian Dyslexia Association and no doubt wherever you are around the world, you would be able to Google your local uh, Dyslexia Association. And she also mentioned Spelled, which is capital S-P-E-L-D and that's a wonderful uh, website with great resources and workshops for parents. It is Australian based, but no doubt there would be specific learning difficulty associations within your local area that you could access. But do check out those websites and resources. And remember to follow up uh, any concerns that you have with the relevant professionals. As we talked about in our chat today, we certainly do get great outcomes with early intervention. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please do refer it to a friend, to a colleague, anyone that you think is going to find this information useful and valuable because uh, it can potentially you know, change someone's life for the better. So please do share the Chat About Children podcast. If you'd like to leave a review, you're more than welcome. And remember to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so. Coming up next episode, I will be talking to a specialist or expert on autism. Um, Sue Larkey is, is very much an expert when it comes to autism and she has some amazing resources and she just works tirelessly uh, in the area of autism spectrum disorders. So I'm looking forward to really chatting to her about some very practical strategies that can be applied within the workplace and also within the home setting. So, you know, what does she have to offer parents and professionals in a practical sense? So please remember to join me for that episode. I appreciate you. I celebrate you. And I look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich. www.chataboutchildren.com. Chat about